0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the last chapter of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 31. As mentioned before, The end of 1 Samuel is arranged so that the reader can't help but see, once again, what has been a back-and-forth contrast of the two main characters, or two of the main characters. Saul, the reigning king of Israel whom the people demanded to have so they could be like the nations around them, and David, the king to be, already anointed by God, but not yet on the throne. In chapter 27, we saw David's dilemma as his idea to seek refuge from King Saul with the Philistines turns from working out really well at first to putting David into an impossible and a deadly position. In chapter 28, we see Saul's dilemma, as his idea to consult a medium for direction actually affirms the overwhelming terror that he feels as he prepares to face the huge and powerful Philistine army camped right across from him. Then in chapters 29 and 30, we see how David is delivered by the Lord from his dilemma, as the Philistine commanders decide not to let David and his men fight with them in this war with Israel. And then in chapter 31, we see how Saul meets his end in death. In other words, his dilemma, dilemma got much worse. As the Philistines rout the Israelites with Saul and his three sons, all dying and Israel losing a lot of territory. So we've seen David and Saul's dilemma contrasted, and then we see how David was delivered, but Saul actually received God's judgment. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 31, be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and, whose, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboah. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Betshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. First, let's look at the overview. The introductory summary is really in the first two verses. Verse 1, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That's the correct verb tense, and it shows a continuing action. The Philistines were fighting instead of the Philist- now the Philistines fought, or had fought. This has been correctly revised in more recent ESV translations, but some t- translations still have it in the past tense. Chapter 31 takes us from David's deliverance and then his subsequent dealing with the Amalekite raiders of Ziklag in the south part of the countryside to the battle that has already started when the Philistines and Israel with the Philistines and Israel in the north. The rest of verse 1 and then verse 2 give us a summary of what then happened, and it is not pretty. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. In other words, the enemies of the Lord definitively win the battle. Jonathan, if you'll notice, is the first recorded casual casualty of the battle at Mount Gilboa. Now before we rush into label this whole mess as only a huge tragedy and you know what especially Jonathan's death is a terrible tragedy. We need to consider one of the most important truths in all of scripture that is right before our eyes and illustrated in and by the death of Jonathan but you say well there's nothing really said about Jonathan here and then he's mentioned in verse 6 too except that he was killed well slow down and consider this has been 50 weeks we've been going through 1 Samuel and several places in this book we found out some incredible things about this son of Saul, Jonathan, have we not? And let's consider those a minute. What do we really know about Jonathan? Did Jonathan humbly surrender his own right to be the future king as King Saul's son Did he not surrender that right to David because he knew God had chosen David to be the next king? Did Jonathan remain a faithful and true friend to David? Did Jonathan remain a faithful son to his sometimes demented father, King Saul? Did he sacrifice his life on the field of battle in his father's army right next to him? Then we must ask, was Jonathan anywhere else but in the place the Lord had called him to be? which was mainly at the side of his father. Let that sink in for a minute. The answers to these questions have already been given to us in the text of this book. And they're very clear, are they not? And because it is so clear, we can actually recognize that there is much a much better way to look at his life than as a tragedy. Now, Del Ralph Davis asked a couple of questions here that will help us realize this in maybe a far deeper level than what we've considered already. What is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has for us? Was it tragic that Jonathan laid aside the kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom that he could not lose? Jonathan's life then teaches us again, one of the most important truths in all of Scripture. And that is that living a worthy life humbly before the Lord in faith does not depend on what our circumstances are. Through all the danger, and really all the thankless obligation he fulfilled to his father Saul, Jonathan remained faithful to the Lord and to his friend David and to his father Saul. That is not a tragic life. It's a glorious work of the Lord In His humble servant, Jonathan. He died faithfully doing his duty, and he would receive a faithful servant's reward. You can count on that. Now, let's bring this home a little bit, because we need to. God's call on an individual believer's life is usually... Very different for each of us, is it not? We can become fearful that God may call us to a life that we did not expect or lead us into circumstances we cannot manage or control or remove us from this earthly abode way before we're ready. This fear, then, actually rules us, and we become tethered to it. Especially if our main desires have, in this life have become to be pain-free, worry-free, preeminently comfortable, and always victorious. If those are our main desires in life, you can expect to be what? Drastically disappointed in every area. Think of Jonathan. Think of his relationship with his incredible friend, David, who he willingly acknowledged as God's next choice and did everything he could to encourage him. Not to mention being the son of Saul, which had to be a trip. And he remained faithful to his Lord throughout. We saw that over and over and over again. So think of your circumstances. What are you griping about this morning? What are you shattered about your life that you haven't ever gotten or experienced? See see how this hits us? It hits us right where our heart is because it is a heart issue. How would Jonathan encourage us about what's really important in this life? Jonathan, come on up tell us. Well, he's told us in his word. In God's word, it's right there. What would Jonathan encourage us about what God's call is for us? Jonathan gets together with a few of his army buddies. I, my father's crazy. He's trying to kill my best friend. He's even, I'm I'm in his bad graces. He thinks I'm nuts for acknowledging God's choice. I've got to get out of here. I'm going to undermine him and get David on the throne. I'm going to, I'm going to start an an underground movement. I'm going to, blah blah blah. I haven't gotten what I wanted. He could go that route. I should be the king. There's a million different ways he could have gone. Do you see what he did? He saw God's call on his life. And he humbled himself before what God had called him to to be and to do. And he lived faithfully before him. And that's it. And it was not tragic. It's a life that most of us look at and go, wow, can I learn from this? Yes, I can learn from this. But let's, let's have some fun for just a second. What would Hannah say to us about what's really important in life and God's call? First part of 1 Samuel. I know that's taxing some of you. It's almost a year ago. What about Samuel? What would he say? Or the Apostles? or any biblical character who trusted the Lord. Isn't it amazing how what they would say about what's really important in life and God's call on us would be very similar to each other? Now, what Ken has done for us this morning is give us a peek into the next question. Just a peek. Did David leave something very special for us in the Psalms he wrote about God and his call in our lives? Can we learn anything? Oh, yeah. We fight this message, though. And the basic struggle in our hearts is that we say he's Lord, but we have a hard time bending the knee when things don't go like we want them to. And that's true for each of us. Do you see the point? It's God's call, you know, God's call on our lives. The one who made us, the one who gave us life, And sent his own son to save us. Because we can't save ourselves. It's God's call. He uses everything. In life. To grow our trust in him. And faithfulness to him. And instead of fearing. What God may bring. Why not embrace his call. Knowing that your life matters to him and living worthy living a worthy life does not depend on your circumstances your life is not more worthy if you're successful if you're whatever your dreams are than the person that you don't even know about who has been handling what God has called him to do and live in a faithful manner do we get that? We live in a free-for-all society that everything is, com- is competition, and there's nothing wrong with competition. That's not the point here. What's the point is that we want to be like so-and-so because we see them all the time, or we live next to them, or they're on our TV, or they're in here, and it's their lives are not like ours, and we want theirs. We don't want ours. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Where do he stand there? Yeah, Jonathan's life, as the New Testament says, is an example of God's grace and someone that we can learn from. He's the first one listed as a casualty of this incredibly devastating battle. And we need to remember what that life really meant because we were all smiling all the way through, Samuel, this book when he came into the text. Because we'd heard this Jonathan's pretty pretty steady guy. He really does trust in the Lord. Look what he's doing for David. Look how is he dealing with his father? Going back and living there and fighting at his side and serving him when his father was trying to kill his best friend. He trusted God with all of that. How He knew what God's call was on his life. He knew how big God is. You know what? We, we know that Scripture reveals to us that our purpose here on, on this earth is much more important than we'll ever realize. I think all of us would admit that. But do we really stand on that? I mean, do we allow that to... Quiet us down in our rebellious thoughts and anger we we are in Christ and part of the Lord's unfolding plan of redemption and we're going to miss seeing a lot of it if we're too busy being fearful about what we don't have and angry because we don't have and we want what we want because in our society we're told that we can have every dream we want we ought to go after it but what if that dream is not what God's called you to do and you're never going to know that if you're just concerned with, I want to fulfill what I want to have fulfilled. Paul has a, a great concise statement about this, that in this context now may, may not just sound like a verse that's thrown out every time for this reason. You know what it is, Romans 8, 28. But Paul knew this. Now listen to his words again, this is a great summary, for once Paul says something pretty short that's about something pretty big instead of something big, big about something that's really big. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We go, yeah, yeah, okay. Do you know that really? Do you, do you live in such a way that people could say, ooh, he really knows that. She really knows that. They live that way. That's how you know whether you know something. Do you know that? Are you learning to live in such a way that the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, yeah, this is also Paul, you can tell, keeps you on the path of being faithful to the Lord in every circumstance? Because it will Are you learning to live in such a way that the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, keeps you in the path of being faithful to the Lord in every circumstance? That's the introduction to this chapter. Now let's get into the blood. So after this introductory summary and verses 1 and 2, we, found out, we find out some of the specifics of the battle in verses 3 through 7. But the focus is not really on the gory details. I mean, there could have been a lot more. This is pretty terse when you look at it. It's short. Because this thing was over. What are we supposed to get here? We are pr- primarily supposed to see how God's word is being fulfilled in and through these details. The truth about this battle, then, is in verse 3 through 7. And all we really need to look at to get the, the message is the verbs. Let me just machine gun them at you here for a second. It won't take long pressed hard against, badly wounded, thrust me through, thrust me through, mistreat or torture me, fell upon the sword, died, fled, fled. Okay, if that describes a battle, do you get it? It it couldn't be any clearer. The battle pressed hard against Saul. Saul was badly wounded. His armor bearer, to his armor bearer, Saul said what? Thrust me through with your sword so that the enemy won't thrust me through and mistreat. That's another way to say torture me. But the armor-bearer refused. Saul took his own sword then and fell upon it, and then he was followed by his armor-bearer doing the same thing. On the same day, Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his bodyguards, which is what it means there when it says all of Saul's men. It was a special contingent of his guys. It doesn't mean the whole army. It means the guys that were with him up there, right there on that that part of Mount Goboa. All of them died. The route was so encompassing that all the people in the countryside then fled. They abandoned their cities and fled. And then we find out that the Philistines came and lived in those towns. We would call that what? Occupying forces. Well, where'd the people go? Let's think about that for a second. So what's so important about this disaster of a battle? Can, can you answer that, you guys have been here or that know this book? Why is this battle so important? It's important because, first and foremost, God is showing us that he does fulfill his word, which he spoke through Samuel here in this book to King Saul. In chapter fifteen twenty eight, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then we hear that again in chapter 28, verse 17 through 19, when he went to the medium and to the medium's horror, God actually called Samuel his servant from the place of the dead to deliver exactly the same message little twist on things there that we went through a couple of weeks ago. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, Samuel says, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. This time he says who? David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and get this, tomorrow you and your son shall be in the realm of the dead, where I am. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. God had announced through his prophet what he was about to do, and this battle was the fulfillment. That's the bottom line. So this dark day in Israel's history was, what? It was not outside of God's purpose. But instead, it falls within the boundaries of what he had already announced. Our dear departed brother Riley Troth would say, and several of you can say this, it was within the parameters. parameters. Almighty God's parameters. And consider this. If the Lord's word of judgment upon Saul is true and it is. We just see how. Then we can be equally assured of his promise to whom? David. It's getting ready to happen. God fulfills both. This again reminds us that whether the circumstances look like to us, they're in darkness or in light. What really matters, what really matters is that we have a God who speaks a true and faithful word. That's what we're depending on. Do you know him? You have a God whose promises he will fulfill to you about your eternal state, about his presence with you. That his purposes really are good in the big scheme of everything that we don't understand. A striking observation in this section here is not what Saul did, it's what Saul didn't do. Saul does not cry out to the Lord for help on that mountain when he'd been shot, riddled with who knows how many arrows. What had happened was I I've told you this before and, and we're going to see it again in a minute, but this is a huge valley and Mount Goboa is on one side and on on the kind of the southeastern side and all the Philistines were on kind of the northwestern side and <clears throat> the Philistines had, Many chariots. The Israel didn't have one, so as they come flying down this valley, the Israelites are just running for their lives. They knew that they had this stuff, so they were already kind of. Saul was camped on Mount Gilboa. Well, that's where it was. There was a spring at the foot of the hills. But man, they took off, and then all the archers took over. Sitting ducks. Saul does not cry out for the Lord's help. Richard Phillips writes, Saul died as he had lived, in hardened self-will and without faith in God's salvation, not even crying out to the Lord with his dying breath. All through his reign, his reign No hand had injured him all the way through it. No hand had injured him. Think of David in the cave, sneaking in the camp. Nobody laid a hand on him. No hand had injured him but his own. Talk about irony. And as he lived, so he died. He was his own undoing and his own murderer. Compare what Saul did not do here to what David prayed in Psalm 59 verses 1 and 2 at a time when Saul sent ruffians to slay David in his own house at night. Do you remember that story? It actually says this in the title of this psalm. psalm when Saul sent men to David's house to slay him. Psalm 59. Listen, this is what David did in a situation where he was cornered, and it looks like his death was imminent. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. What a difference night and day. Saul's armor-bearer would not follow Saul's command to thrust him through. Why? For the same reason David didn't lay lay a hand on him when the opportunity presented itself at least two times. Saul was still the the Lord's anointed. The Lord used Mount Gilboa, therefore, in this disastrous defeat to once again expose the foolishness of Israel's idolatry. This is another big, a big picture issue we need to see as we wrap this book up. What, what do I mean by that? Well, back in chapter 8, remember? The people of Israel had voiced really what was a craving for a king to have a king like all the nations around them. Somebody that looked like a king and acted like a king and would defend them in their wars. In other words, they claimed they needed a new political system, and that their real concern was defense. Maybe I'll have a disclaimer at this point. They thought this would be progress, but the Lord calls it idolatry. Chapter 31 of 1 Samuel shows that where trust, it shows where trust in the political process, complete trust in a political process, brings a people. Where did it bring them? Some idols, remember Dagon? Lie shattered before the ark of the Lord. Another cool Section of it. This whole book is incredible, but when the Philistines, when they captured the Ark, and they set it in that place, and 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 an idol of Dagon was on a shelf right next to it, and every morning they come in, and the idol had fallen down and fallen down, and finally it fell over and just and just broke up. Okay, listen. Some idols like Dagon lie shattered before the Ark of the Lord, and other idols lay slain on Mount Gilboa. The people had put their trust in a man who didn't even know the Lord, but they thought he was a stud. He was a king. He was tough. He could lead them and defend them, and they put their trust on that. Now, just to get everybody's kind of on the same page here. This is the Valley of Jezreel, and it runs into the Jordan Valley here. Now just remember, this was the king of Philistine here that let David come in and hide, and he gave him this city to live in. David, at this point during this battle, is rescuing the families. Remember from the last chapter? Um, and going back to Ziklag, and here's that, that creek where he left 200 guys. It kind of runs down here and goes like this, and then comes back up. So it's about 10 miles where they left him. But they went way down into the Baptist street somewhere um, to find him. Okay, so that's what he's doing. He's a really a long way away from this battle. This battle is right there on Mount Goboa. That's where Saul died. Now, just a second. His body and the body of his three sons were on that mountain. Marty and I got to, and Megan got to go, you know, a long time ago, seems like now. When was that, 2000? And we stood on the top of that mountain, and then we saw the wall in bet Shan where they had nailed or hung, or whatever they did to put the bodies on the wall after they cut Saul's head off. And the association of um, the Lord with his people here is unmistakable. This is the way ancient people do it, but we kind of do it like this, too. If your army slaughters my army, then your God is greater than my God, more powerful than my God. So... You proclaim that victory every way you can think of, and boy, did the Philistines do that. Saul's head is cut off. Now remember, somebody else cut off somebody else's hero's head. David, remember? This is sort of a revenge thing here, I think. But it was pretty common practice. And then his body and his son's bodies were hung on a wall in the city of Bethshan again there for display and ridicule. And the Philistines sent messages throughout the land of the good news of their victory and Saul's armor was taken to the temple of Ashtoreth and Bethshan, and this was an important walled city. Any city that was big enough to have a wall was important because important it was easily to defend. And it was at the junction of the Jezreel Valley and the Jordan River Valley. So this was a strategic location here. There's a whole, it, there's some hills here, but this valley goes all the way to the sea, and it's named other places in the Bible. Most of you've heard of that, but that's an important. It's an important place, and it was actually the farthest eastern old Canaanite city. Now get this, it was the, it was the city more to the east than anywhere else that had never been. There's so much irony in this story, it's incredible. The Israelites didn't capture it when they came in to conquer the land. And what is sad and should sadden us as well is that the Lord's name is being mocked here. Do you get that? Dragged through the mud, one commentator wrote that once again, pagan evangelists, We're running all over the land chanting, Yahweh is a loser. I mean, the pressure was pretty tough. And then we see something incredible happen in the closing paragraph of this book that the Lord does to give us a gift. This is a gift here at the end. Because... The men of Jabesh-Gilead, and if I can hold this still, it's this dot right there, and they think this is where this town was. It's got to be somewhere right in here. It's about 10 miles from there to there. Now, that name should ring a bell, but some men of Jabesh-Gilead, because of their gratitude at what? Saul had done 40 years before then, gathered up their strength and their confidence and their faith, and in the middle of the night, they go from Jabesh Gilead to bet and somehow sneak in there and get the bodies off the wall and bring them back. This sounds like something crazy David and Jonathan would do. These were ordinary guys that weren't ordinary. Now, here's what was going on. Saul and his sons had saved this city from the Ammonites back in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, right after, pretty, pretty soon after, Saul had been chosen as king. So that by this act, they honored Saul for his deliverance 40 years ago. They did this out of gratitude. Nahash, the Ammonite, had laid siege to their city and made the removal of every man's right eye a condition of surrendering. The people there said, We'll surrender to you, Ammonite, Nahash, and we will serve you. And his condition was, When that happens, I'm going to take out the right eye of every man in there most guys are right-handed they can't fight with a sword real good their depth perception is off because you know they're they're using it it was a, not a, it was a demeaning shameful attack that had a little military strategy in with it so these ammonites were so hot on themselves that the Jabesh Gilead elders, ask them if they could have seven days to see if anybody would come rescue them because they had the the city was surrounded they said sure go try well they sent messengers back and forth Saul heard of this and with and he got a, a force together and on the very last moment before they actually attacked the city because see the deals were you either let us rule you and you surrender and you will cut out your eyes or we'll just wipe you out. I mean, it was either surrender and have your eyes out or we'll wipe you out. Those were the two options. But these guys said, sure, go ahead and take seven days. And in that time, Saul did what? During that week, Saul heard of their plight. He raised up a force. He came to the city and he delivered them in a decisive attack. And many people, me included, probably many of you, think that that was Saul's greatest act as a king. It was phenomenal. He did what God called him to do. And God was with him, allowing him to do what God had called, had allowed him to do, which was protect his people. So the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead did something that, could we say, was foolish and looked impossible? but it was from a debt of gratitude. We don't know how in the world they were able to remove the bodies and get them back, only God knows, but they did. They burned the bodies first, probably because they were so mangled and mutilated. But they saved the bones out of that and buried the bones. So burying the bones was was kind of the symbol of being the whole body being buried, and that was the proper way that we see in the Old Testament. <coughs> and they also said, That they fasted. Saul's reign as a king had begun with this deliverance of Jabesh Gilead. And it looked so hopeful, did it not? I mean, that was a great way to start. And it ends with Jabesh Gilead's men delivering Saul's (laughs) mutilated body from the hands of the Philistines. So Saul's first act in delivering Jabesh Gilead. From the Ammonites was really his only faithful and obedient act. And that's that's incredible to think about as well. Here in chapter 31, the men of jabesh Gilead arrive in the role in the role of true believers, t- true belief in the midst of a disaster. Now, a few of you are smiling because you know that this battle is a disaster but you know who wins the war. Do you not? Do you see that the men of Jabesh, Gilead and believers like them? hint hint end up winning? The kingdom in which they believed did recover from this defeat. Within a short time, these valiant believers would see a newly anointed king. Who's that? David. A man after God's own heart who would burst into this disastrous scene in what can only be called conquering might. The Lord has chosen a shepherd for the sheep fleeing their cities because of this Philistine victory. You still got that picture? This is a, a, The sheep are scattered. They need a shepherd and for the rest of the believers who see their leadership annihilated and much of the territory evacuated and then occupied. And as this book ends, nothing looks so depressing as the bodies scattered all over Mount Gilboa, but then it's not what man sees that matters. Chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This has been an incredible couple of weeks. 15 years since 9 9-1, 11. Crushed. We were talking yesterday about what you remember about that. Are we learning to see as God sees and not as man sees, no matter what it is? how personal it is or how it includes our area or our country or this part of the world or whatever. We serve the king of kings. David points to him. He's a type of him. He will come back. He will make all things right. He will conquer all evil. He will judge righteously. We belong to him. And we need to help each other think that way when it just looks impossible, I got a text this morning from one of my f- best friends, my college roommate, who's going through incredible. What I would just call—I don't—I don't know where his endurance comes from. Actually, I do, which is why I'm telling you this. Hasn't been really gainfully employed in two years after some disasters in his life, and he sent this text that says, Bobby, I hope you have the joy of the Lord this day as you see God blessing his people through his word. What do you think? Can we? Yeah, we can. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may we Live faithfully no matter what our circumstances may be. Trusting in you and your word because you and your word are true. Lord, may we be concerned with your honor, the honor of your name and of your work and your son. And may we be encouraged by the confidence and faith that we see growing out of our genuine gratitude to you for sending us your son, like those valiant men of Jabesh Gilead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? This is from the Apostle Paul in Romans. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.